Today we're joined by Ryan Ketchum, and this episode is particularly interesting. Ryan is someone who clearly had that entrepreneurial drive from early on, but didn't actually move into what we would consider the traditional tech startup world until almost 10 years after graduating. He currently serves as the Senior Director of Sales at Woven, a company designed to help other fast-growing companies hire software engineers. And in this episode, we cover a couple different things. We cover you know, his transition from student athlete way back in the day to gym owner and to now uh, his current role as a startup executive. We talk about learnings on the way, one of those learnings being the number one responsibility that sales leaders should be spending their time on. So if you're interested in hearing about that and Ryan's background and everything else we talked about, stay tuned. This is a good one. Let's get started. So I'm here with Ryan. Welcome. Hey, Grayson. Appreciate you having me on today. I'm excited. Yeah, I'm excited to dive into some of this. We've got you've got a, a particularly interesting background coming from fitness and moving into sales and working for a startup. So I'm excited to get into that background. But I'd love to just hear uh, start off with some general background on yourself. What brought you to Indy? Like what kept you here? How did you get to this point? Just real quick, and then we'll dive into the details uh, throughout the rest of the conversation. Yeah, the the high level like flyover. I came to Indiana from Kansas for college. So I went to Indiana University, uh, was a track athlete there. And so I ended up staying in Bloomington after that and started my fitness businesses. The things we'll talk about in a little bit more of that background. Grew a couple of businesses there and then moved up into the Indianapolis area after I had started our family. And we moved up here to be a little closer to... Uh, my ex-wife's family at the time. A little bit more help turned out to be fortuitous because we ended up needing to help them out uh, a little bit through some health challenges that they had and then have been here ever since. So it was a lot of just like natural path. I knew I wanted to get out of Kansas, landed in Bloomington and then uh, moved up here to Indy. And the rest is, uh, I guess we'll dive into the details as we get into it. But no like particular reason personally other than family stuff to be up here. Cool. Yeah. And you and I actually share a alum. We were both at IU. So I'd love to hear, I guess, like, was your very first experience with sales? Was that down in Bloomington at IU or were you like pre-college involved in the sales world? I have kind of the typical story of like an entrepreneur started out. So I can remember starting a lawn mowing business when I was like 10 or 11 like putting stuff in the church bulletin to awesome. get clients, knocking on doors, trying to get leads, going to that, making my parents drive me around with a lawnmower in the back of the car to mow the lawns because I couldn't do it myself. So I kind of always had that and didn't really know what it was. You know, so there's a little bit of sales with that. Never really thought of sales as a career, quite honestly, until later in life. But started after school. Uh, actually, I started my last semester of college. I knew I didn't want to go to grad school. I had a rare idea of what, what I wanted to do, getting recruited to go to college. And I was really fortunate to be the kid that like, didn't have to try that hard in school and got really good grades. So everybody pushes you to like business or med school or something like that. And I didn't really want to do either of those. Started out in business uh, at IU and hated it. Like absolutely couldn't stand it. Didn't want to go to class. And so flipped over and started in their kinesiology program after that. And kind of had plans to be a strength coach after college and see where that would take me. 
being as close to I was as an athlete to the strength coaches, I saw all the politics that go on with that, how grueling that job was for any sort of opportunity. I was like, I don't want to do that. So I didn't really have much of a path after college and uh, was lucky enough to kind of be, be good enough athletically to potentially pursue some things after college, uh, far from professional athlete with that, but pursuing like national championships, Olympic trials and things like that. And in my last semester, because I didn't want to go to grad school, I'd had like four credit hours and that's all I had to take. And so during that time, I also started training young high school athletes. And so that was probably the first like sales experience that I'd had was okay. you know, you've got to sell people on why you, why would they trust this college athlete to train their athlete and started my business there. When I graduated, I just continued that on. I had a good friend that had started a, a career with that. And so I started my own business, rented space out of a gym. And that's when it clicked was, okay, you've got to be able to sell these clients to get you to pay. And I can remember my first sale to this day. They just like rolled over on me. It was super easy. I was as nervous as you could be. I couldn't believe somebody was cutting me a check for the amount that they were to like train their kid to, to play a sport and quickly learned that you had to get good at that part of the business if you wanted to succeed. Like clients weren't just coming to you. I didn't have the gym feeding me clients. I had to find my own. So was really successful in that and sort of just think outside the box. You quickly realize you're trading time for dollars. You know, every hour session with one client, you have so many hours in a day before you just burn out. If you're not working, you don't make money. Mm -hmm. And so started into really early on. So this was 2006, 2007, when I started doing like semi-private training. So I'd say, I'll just charge the same amount and I'll train two or three people on individual programs at the same time. They didn't have to be friends. We didn't split the cost of the session. Like they're getting the same value. And so this was before a lot of that had really taken off. So I had to figure out how do I sell that to them? How do I convince them that this is a good deal? This is better for them. And I got to be where I was successful enough in that, that I was running out of space. I was really irritating everyone else in the gym because I was taking up a bunch of space with my clients. And so I said, well, the next step is start your own fitness business and started that and quickly then realized, you know, Fitness professionals and people out there, there's a dime a dozen. There's a hundred different methodologies out there that kind of rotate through. I didn't feel like I had anything special to offer on that side of things. But what I was good at was learning how to run the business side. The big part of that was how do you sell? How do you retain clients? So when I started that gym, that was my role. I tried to work myself out of being a trainer into that, then hiring other trainers, getting them to come on, teaching them how to sell teaching, you know, eventually general managers, people on the sales team, how to sell that, how to run that business. And then that led to me doing more consulting and things like that. So I've just kind of gradually through my, my years progressed to it and kind of figured out like, this is a thing that I was good at. I really liked. And that I think I had some value to deliver to some other people. So it's been kind of a weird transition, kind of fell into a sales experience. And I think we'll get more into the like, how did I actually get into sales in a, a startup environment and how that that all transpired? But that's kind of where the like light bulb really clicked off. I feel like I, I figured out what I'm really good at, or I think I'm really good at. So. <laughs> Was there a moment when you realized that 
well, one way, how are you pitching this to these high schoolers? Were you saying, oh, I'm a college athlete. I'll train you. You'd be like me. Or is it more like you want to like, this is you now, this is what you could be. Like, when did you realize that maybe there's different ways to sell and speak to like different audiences and, and stuff like that? Yeah. So, you know, with parents of high school kids, everyone's aspiration. I, we all hear about, you know, the, the crazy sports parent that wants their kid, everybody thinks they're going to go pro. I think you're you're silly not to use whatever you have in your experience to sell and to market yourself with that. Mm-hmm. So I definitely leverage that because you don't have any results. You have no clients. You have, I know what I'm doing. I've been there. I've done that. And you use that. Uh, but you definitely then, I quickly realized that you have to sell the path. Here's where your athlete is today. Here's the areas that I think that they can improve upon based off my experience, my knowledge, my education. Here's the plan to get them there. If they get them there, here's what you should see from that. So it's no different than any sales experience, whether you're selling B2B software, you're selling B2C, anything. You're painting that picture, you're creating that gap for them, and you're showing them like, here's what you could be if we work with me. Um, and if you don't, like maybe you'll get there, maybe you don't. I don't know. Here's what I have to offer. So that was a really quick realization for me. I think to figure out like, how do you tie that value? How do you figure out what their challenges really are? And how do you help them solve that? Or, or are you the person to help solve that? Because there were certain things that I think I realized quickly, you don't have to be everything to everyone either. Sure. So I'm interested, you've got a couple kind of fitness industry experiences. So was that first one, was that Force Fitness, correct? Yes. So that was my studio that we had had. That was like post the gym when I was just kind of like my own little entity with myself. But Force Fitness was the studio and we had 6,000 square feet, eventually like garage gym space. Started that in 2008. So maybe like the worst time to possibly start a business for things that require disposable income, but like too young and dumb to realize that and (laughs) just saw an opportunity and you make the most of it. Yeah. And then the next like fitness frontier, you've got a whole like fitness journey that precedes your startup life. So you went into Vertex and then what was different about Vertex? Like what was kind of the progression there? Yeah. So there's a little bit of overlap as we go through. So while I was still running the gym, got to a point where I had the gym running kind of on autopilot. And while I was running the gym, a thing I realized really early on I mean, I think this is any successful professionals. I don't know everything and I can either learn the hard way and figure it all out and hope I figure it out myself, or I can go hire people that have been there, done that and consult with me. So early on, I hired some business coaches specific to to the fitness world. Uh, I had a lot of mentors as well. That's one great thing about personal training is you get to work with some very successful people. Uh, Mm -hmm. You build that relationship. They're more than happy to let you pick their brain and get to know how they were successful as well. So those business coaches, I started with them and had a lot of success in their program, got to become really good friends with them, and then started taking on some projects and helping them out as well, which was Fitness Revolution and Fitness Consulting Group was kind of the same company within that. So while I still had the gym, uh, I started doing that. I'm mean, helping out, like running coaching programs, helping other business owners, sharing like our systems, our processes, what we were doing to help them grow. So I was doing that at the same time. And then when I sold the gym, then the very next step was it was at Vertex. And what that was was more of an online program. So went more and shared more of the like training principles, a lot of the business principles that I ran. 
ended up doing and transitioning from a lot of high school athletes to like transformation type programs. Mm, and so I shared a lot of that information. And a big part of Vertex was also leveraging my network that I built up in the fitness world to do interviews and help sell other programs that these other people had had out there with the audience that I had eventually built up with that. So that was more like an educational platform that I started alongside the partners that I had while still doing the consulting. Uh, and so I've always like, I don't know, I tell people I'm a glutton for punishment, I think a lot. Like always taking on a little bit more than probably what I could handle, a little bit of chaos. Uh, I thrive in that kind of environment. And those experiences helped set me up for life in a startup world as well. Yeah. And that was like, you went from founder and kind of owner to like VP of sales and marketing, correct? And yeah. what, like what sales and marketing were you doing at this kind of like company, I guess. Yeah. So fitness consulting group, which eventually like transitioned to fitness revolution with that. At one point, uh, I was a partner in that. And then my responsibilities were the, the VP of sales and marketing. This, And at one point we had, I think, 14 different brands that we okay. managed. So we had the gym consulting. That was our primary driver. And then we had equity stake in all these other brands. And it went from everything from gym franchises and licenses, where you could license the name and the systems for this, all the way to like equipment and educational programs. Mm. And the model was, there's usually a figurehead for each of these that is really good at delivering the message. They're kind of the face of it. The best way to tie it together would be, a, it'd be kind of like, like an Instagram influencer or someone that's like really good at like, they're sharing their information, they've got content to share but don't know how to run or they don't have the interest in operating the business behind the scenes. And so we would take some equity in that. And then I would run all the sales and marketing for all of those. So I got experience doing everything from e-commerce to phone sales to everything in between. How do you sell equipment versus information product? How do you write long form copy, email marketing, social media marketing? I oversaw all that for all up to the 14 brands. And then gradually we transitioned to say, we're spread way too thin. And so we kind of sold off our equity, got rid of those other 14 brands, let them go on their own, got them set up and went solely on to the, the business coaching and consulting part for other fitness business owners. And that's really where I got the chance to build out a legit team for that, that one thing. So I would be everything from kind of the face of the company. Then with that, where I was out doing the social media, I was out speaking at conferences, delivering the trainings. And then we hired a team of coaches that would be similar to like a CSM in the startup world or an account manager where they work directly with the clients we sold and a sales team that would go sell the customers with this while also running uh, kind of our lead generation would be like we'd sell products so we'd strip out parts of the system and sell educational information. And we had a membership site that we sold into that then was kind of the base for this are our prospects for the coaching once we got them into. So uh, a lot of complex moving parts, yeah. small <laughs> team, how to scale it up fast. I had to learn a lot about the downside to like the fitness world is that there's not a whole lot of money to be made in there. It's like was always a passion. I loved it. But you, know, you had to learn how to like go find and train up people that you know were not paying the salaries that an AE 
at a startup is getting paid or a CSM would get paid. You have to figure out how to train them up, get them excited about it and for them to do a really good job. And I think, you know, that skill set and learning that I've made a ton of mistakes along the way has benefited in my journey as I went into the startup world. Yeah. And I'm interested because you go from selling to, you know, maybe in consumers, you're selling fitness products, probably a lot of different people than kind of what, who you're selling to at Woven. So more of those engineering leaders, uh, probably very different personalities. But so let's give a little background on Woven, how you got involved with them. What was the company like when you got started? Because that, like you were saying, is your intro into the startup world. Yeah. So kind of the intro and how I, I found Woven as we start that is I got really burnt out on the consulting piece. I was on the road speaking 20, 25 weeks out of the year traveling, like not the full week, but you know, 20 of those weeks I was on the road, flying around, doing something, driving, running groups, and really struggling to like keep that all moving, balance that with family. I just had my son. He was like a year, year or two old. Wasn't home a lot for that. We had an office where we were there. So my life looked like it was like up at 4 a.m. to the gym, work out, shower at the gym, go right into the office because I had from about 6.30 till 8 to do any creative work that I was doing. I was still writing a lot of the blog posts, doing a lot of the marketing, writing copy. Then I go right from 8 to 5 or 6 whenever the day ended through the day with meetings and helping the team out, doing whatever I could there commute home, get home, turn around, start doing it all over again, and then be on the road in between that. And it's got to be really burnt out. So had a talk with partner at the time and said like, Hey, like we, I got to figure out how this changes. It's got to be more lucrative. Like something has to change. And we just couldn't like figure out exactly how that would work. So mm-hmm. I said, cool. I'll just like, you can buy me out. Let's talk about it. I'll do a transition. We'll make that work. And I remember when we talked about it, he said, well, what are you going to do next? I said, I have no idea. Like absolutely zero clue. I'll figure it out. And when I sold my gym, I was like, I don't know how this is all going to work out either. It's like, I'm not a very risk averse person. I was just jumping on it. I'll figure it out. I build the plane as we land the whole thing. So went to my advisors and mentors and I was really lucky to have coaches, mentors, a lot of people around me that I trusted. And I had conversations with them. Here's what's going on. What do you think? You know me well enough. What do you think I should try? Where do you think I'd be a good fit? Like, just give me some guidance. And like 10 out of 10 um, said, absolutely sales. I would try like tech sales, try to get into that environment. Like, All right. So I started looking around for, for those jobs and had a pretty quick like realization. Like you're not going to land a VP job at something like this. You're not going to land a management or executive level job with no experience with that. And it's a different floor. And I was totally cool to take a step back and say like, let's just start out as an individual contributor. Interviewed with a few companies. It just like wasn't a fit. I tell people to this day, like I would be a corporate misfit. Put me in like a really, a large company, put me in something that's really well established. Like somebody telling you what to do, just follow this process. I'd be gone in three weeks. Mm -hmm. So I was looking for something different. And I woven came through on job boards like five or six times. Like, nah, I don't, this I don't understand. I don't get it. After you know, six or seventh time, I don't know, maybe the universe is trying to tell me something. So yeah. submitted an application, went through, and then had the first conversation with Wes, who's our CEO. And that's really what sold me. Wes is great, a great conversation. I liked kind of the direction they were going. I liked the stage that they were at, where like I can bring some of the things that I've done 
to that team, I could make a big impact. I saw the growth opportunity there, but I still hold this over Wes's head to this day. I think I mentioned it last week to him as I, I rub it in his face a little bit. I remember at the interview process, I asked him, I said, okay, so we're hiring like the first couple of AEs. And then eventually, like, what's the plan? Eventually, you're going to have to have a VP, a head of sales, something like that. Like, how long? And he, everything's unknown in the startup world. So he gave me some random timeline answer. Like, oh, we're not sure. I said, okay, well, when that time comes, do you think I have the opportunity to, to take that on? And he's like, well, we could have that conversation when we get there. Like, you know, I, I don't know. Sometimes you need someone with experience. And it was a, a very polite brush off to a candidate that they probably wanted to bring on, but didn't want to totally turn away. And so I still rub it in his face to this day that I was like, yeah, that turned out funny, didn't it? I remember when you blew me off when I asked that question. But had that conversation, liked the opportunity, really connected with the team. Uh, so when I came in, uh, we were a pre-product market fit. We barely had a product. I think we had eight customers, all like network connections, like people, yep. the people in the company had worked for. I was employed five or six. So the very first sales hire. Okay. Yeah, there you go. So like very first sales hire. They brought on a second AE a couple weeks later. I think he he might have lasted three three to six weeks before that wasn't a fit, and so just took it all on. So that's kind of how I found Wova and landed on it. The things that I liked were I wasn't necessarily drawn to the product or like you know what we're doing. So I didn't know anything about software engineering. I had no idea about the actual challenges. I liked that it was a challenge to go get into the market. Can you figure out how to sell this thing? There's a lot of autonomy. I can create the processes. They didn't have a whole lot there to begin with. And they were going to give me the opportunity to just go like, I could live and die by whether I delivered results or not. Um, I trust myself to go do that. I'll give it a shot. And so what we do at Woven, we deliver, we'd be bucketed into the category of assessments. We call them work simulations. And it's specifically for teams hiring software engineers. So when I started, we were very focused on early stage startups trying to hire you know, their first few engineers, small teams, VPs underwater trying to hire, but has to hire to hit headcount goals to get the product goals out. Over time now, we've shifted. The product has definitely developed over that time. We are more focused on like mid-market small enterprise, especially with the current environment where hiring is a little unstable. That's a more stable environment for us. And what we do, we help them to modernize and standardize their hiring process for software engineers. It's a better candidate experience when they use Woven. It is also a better experience for the hiring team. They get a really strong signal on the candidates. They reduce their risk of miss levels or making that miss hire, which can be critical at a fast growing tech company. And we alleviate a lot of the time that they have to take to evaluate those candidates by just putting the best candidates in front of them. Yeah, I've I've heard that concept for like sales hiring as well. Like uh, Mark Roberge actually has a pretty cool like scoring system that he used at HubSpot around like identifying good fit traits. So I'm super on board with that. I do that as well here at Sonovation with any new hire and stuff. They they take certain assessments because there are characteristics that I want to hire for. So I love that. And you actually already touched on a little bit of this next question about like moving backwards in title. You brought it up in the interview. So you're obviously thinking about that leadership role. How did you plan to get there? Like, obviously, anyone can come in and say, hey, I want to progress in my career. I want to be a leader. How was it 
Like I am an AE now, but in a year I'm going to be the director of sales, which sounded like it was your mentality coming in. Yeah. Some of it might just be like overconfidence in <laughs> myself. I didn't necessarily have a plan to get there. There's so many things that change. We were pre-seed funding when I jumped on. So first goal was like, can we even be successful here? Learned really quickly. And I was good with this with starting my own business on the risk that I could do all the things right. And we could not have product market fit. We could not figure it out fast enough. Things might fail. So number one goal was go put up the numbers and show that I can develop these processes that we can get this done. Because it's got to go past me if I'm ever going to get to a director of, head of, whatever the title might be. I'll also preface this with like, I'm not big on title. I think there's a certain level of respect that I like from that. It's almost like the, this is how you know you've made it. It's the validation for what you've done. But I don't necessarily need a title with this. So I was, was okay with that. Now I'll, I'll also then come back and maybe contradict and say, being a little bit more mature now through years in, in the startup world, that like you always have to look out for your own career with this as well. And there is something to be said for having the right title to get the next step in your career, knowing where you want to go. So you've got to kind of fight for yourself with this. So my overall plan was go, go be successful. And something I've always done and all through my career was take on a little bit more than what was expected of me or what you would normally do in a role. You know, as an AE, all I needed to do was generate my pipeline, close deals, and drive revenue for the company. I'm also I'm very money motivated, and again, some of it is like once you get to a certain point of making money, like you need that amount of money. You have that; it provides certain things for you. It is amazing. Like having I've have had no money. I'm like when I started my first business, I lived above a garage in a friend's house and paid like three hundred dollars a month in rent just to figure it out. Having money is way better than not having money. But you get to a certain point and it's like, you have to figure out like, what does it really mean to you? How hard are you willing to work to get to, you know, from 100K to 250K to 500K? A lot of that is validation that says like, you're doing a really good job. You're good at what you do. And that's something I pride myself on. I also just like, don't really like to be told what to do or like have a boss. So the plan is always like, figure out how to make that happen with this. So I wanted to go put up numbers. And then I was always willing to fight for myself on it. At the point where we started to see some success in sales, the next logical step was, how do we get SDRs on board? Mm -hmm. And initial plan with the company was the director of demand gen was going to hire and run the team of SDRs. I'm really vocal in what my thoughts are and why I think that way. And so I presented immediately. I said, I think that's a mistake. Nothing against that person uh, at the time, but they had never done cold calling. They had never done any management of SDRs, never been an SDR. And I said, you're gonna have a really hard time hiring the right people and training them up if that person's never done this. We're setting them up and the SDRs up for success. And they pushed back, still ran with that plan. And what it ended up being was I was doing most of the training, doing most of the coaching, assisting with them on that. And what he did kind of some of the day-to-day -day management and then quickly realized it's like the path to success is like, let me manage that team of SDRs. So I was doing that while I still had the AE title. Then doing all the hiring and scaling that up. And I don't even remember the timeline in which I like took on a sales director or whatever roles. Built that up. We drove the pipeline enough that I could not handle all the deals anymore. So then we go to start to hire AEs. That's when you start to move into the title. So a lot of it is just like taking on a little bit more. Don't worry about needing the title before you need to take these things on. Find out from whoever is your leadership 
What are the projects that you could take on with that? How could you move the needle forward? Thinking two or three steps ahead in the business to figure out where can you make an impact? Where can you add value that sets you up to say, I'm the obvious choice for this? Um, like there's, there's no reason you wouldn't give me this. And I was always afraid, not afraid to fight for that title or fight for that next step up and tell them like, I'm the person that, that you need to have in this role. Yeah, no, I think, uh, probably a surprising amount of people don't actually like voice that like, Hey, I guess ask in the first place, what else could we be doing that would make me a good fit for this next role? I'm interested though, like what's. You could have gone on. You said you you're motivated by money. You could have gone on, uh, just crushed it as an individual contributor, got that nice AE commission every time a, a new deal came in. Like, what about you do you think made you want to go into a leadership role? It seems like it was kind of natural, and you had you'd had plenty of leadership experience in the past. But what about you? Do you think like led you into a leadership path versus like crushing it as an individual contributor? Yeah, Wes and I had a lot of conversations. I was really lucky that he's open to having the career conversations and figuring it out. And I struggled a long time with, do I want to just stay in this IC role and and just crush it and cash my checks and that's fine and not worry about all these other things? Or do I want to step into this next bet? Some of it was, I like the challenge. It got to a point I was doing really well as an A and then running some of the, the team Things were cruising along. I was on track to like, I was easily crushing what like my personal goals were for income and that got kind of boring to me. Mm-hmm. At that point, I wasn't ready to really say, I didn't feel like I like wanted to step up to like a mid-market or enterprise role. I really liked the, like a faster sales cycle, things like that. And so this was really the next challenge. And I wanted something that was going to push me and, and make me have to think through. And I also thought I had the skill set to do it. The other part is probably that little bit of a coach type of person that comes from the personal training background, consulting okay. background that I did where I like to help elevate others like this. Like, I'm probably going to do that either way. Um, I want to be able to do this. And I think it's it was a nice challenge. And I've said this from day one. I said, you know, I'm, I'm here for it. Let's get to our Series A. Um, like, if I'm still the right fit and that's the right role, let's get to Series B. We'll evaluate there. I don't know if I'm the right fit after that or that's the next challenge that I want to go to either. Um, and so it's always just thinking about, like, it's the challenge to go into it. And I do like stepping back and like, I'm not afraid to roll up my sleeves. I'm not a leader that's like not going to jump into a deal or help someone out with something or do the dirty work that you have to do in your day to day. But I also really do like the strategic planning and the process and the thinking about how to make the overall system better where other people can come in and succeed as well. And then if they're succeeding, like obviously benefits you, which comes with its trade-offs because not everyone's always going to succeed or have that same drive that you do. You just have to kind of recalibrate what your expectations are for that. Yeah. Something interesting that you called out, I've noticed it too personally. So many people who are successful sales leaders do come from that coaching background. Like how much of your time would you say goes into like coaching versus like the more like traditional management process systems, like strategic thinking and like how important do you think that coaching time is? How important is that coaching time? I think it's probably the most important thing that you can do. I think that I split up your kind of leadership and there's there's four boxes. There's kind of a grid. On one corner, there's, there's your mentor. Uh, let's call it trainer. That's more your management. Do this. This is how we do it. Do it this way. Holding people accountable to whatever their KPIs are, whatever they, you know, you're tracking for activity, those things. 
there's this trainer, I'll show you how to do it type of mentality. You have that management, like hold them accountable piece. You've got the coach, which is then help them discover how to do it, get them to realize here's the potential. And then there's the mentor with like, let me help you out with your career, help you see these next things that are coming. I'll share kind of how you've got there before. I think I spend a majority of my time in coach trainer mode with this right now. And it ebbs and flows. I think in a leadership role in a really fast growing company, you go through periods of time where you've got to do aggressive hiring and you're not getting as much time with your team. And you've got to have the team that you have clicking on all cylinders and you're more management with that and a little bit of coaching. You've got then the time where you've got the team where you're running and you're doing less hiring and now you're trying to elevate and escalate and it shifts gears based off priorities or what you're seeing in the company. You know, win rates down. What is the next move? How do you get to the next level? But if you're not coaching your team and you're not spending a, a good portion of your time coaching, and I think that just varies. Right now, it's probably 25% uh, of my time, just given like where I'm at. And I've taken on a bit of a new challenge as well, where I just recently in the last three or four months took on our CS function as well. And so now it's kind of like all revenue comes in and reports into me. So I'm learning a lot of that. So I'm asking them to train me more about what's your day-to-day. You know, I kind of know what you do, but like, let's figure that out. And then stepping back outside of that and coaching them a lot on, here's what I think we're missing. Here's some opportunities that we could be in and a little bit less with the AEs right now. So it ebbs and flows. But if you're not coaching your folks, and that is a thing, like when you're hiring, that's something I look for is coachability. A hundred percent of the time, it's you know, it's really difficult to work with that person that just wants to resist everything you're telling them or doesn't want to apply anything new, thinks they know everything with it. And it's not that I know everything, but I get to see this, whether I have that experience or I get to see this outside perspective of you doing your job that you don't get to see, you're right in it. I can share some things. And if they're not willing to accept that, they're going to limit their growth all of the time, which then limits your growth. So that coaching is a huge chunk of time that I spend with the team. And I think it's really important to, to do that as a leader, especially in sales with that. It's probably in any role, but that's the one I'm most familiar with. And you mentioned something that I wanted to come back to about titles and how like, maybe you're not like, you don't care as much about the title, but it does do a pretty good job of representing like what experiences that you've had, especially for future roles and stuff like that. The interesting progression with you is that you went from, you know, founder title, then to like the VP of sales down to the individual contributor, and then back up to, again, this like sales leadership role. Uh, And so I'm interested in like the characteristics, responsibilities, the things that you're doing now, again, back as this senior director of sales role that you weren't initially as just this AE role at Woven. Yeah. You know, and all the previous before Woven, I'd say it's like, a very different leveling and titling. Right? You know, it's founder of a really small company doing a million dollars a year. You're wearing all the hats, doing a lot of things, doing a lot of you know contract work to help you out with that. That previous VP title was a little bit more like what I would be doing now: hiring the team, building the team, strategy, working at the highest level within the company. There, but the differences now are you know when I came into Woven as that AE, like my number one responsibility was drive new business. And I could do as much else. And I was in the room, like, you know, we're six, eight person company at the time. Like mm-hmm. at that point, you're, you know, your strategy planning is just like, you're doing it month to month, if not week to week, trying to figure it out. Everybody's in the room talking about it. 
So we'd be involved in that, but it was more about like, how do I make sure I'm successful in this? I've got to figure out how to be successful here. Less worried about all the other impact and everything else that comes in. I'm not thinking about a team. I'm not thinking about any of that. How do I put up my number so that we can survive and get to that next round of funding? And one of the things that's similar is that I always put that on me as like, hey, everybody's kind of the whole rest of this team is relying on me to do this for them to keep their job. If I don't do my job, they don't keep their job. And that is the skill that transfers or the mindset that transfers when you go to leadership. It's like, if you're not doing your job really well, you've got your team of AEs, SDRs, whatever it might be, that are all dependent on you to be able to keep their jobs. And in turn, they've got to do theirs so that you keep yours. So there's a little bit of a trade-off there. I was a lot more like tactical boots on the ground, doing a lot more of the like day-to-day work in that AE role. And then as I gradually started to bring on a team, even before that title, that's where you start to get pulled in a lot of directions. And this is where the like player coach, you won't talk to an advisor, a board member, anyone that'll say player coach is a good idea. I am blessed and cursed with the mindset that like, tell me I can't do something. I'll figure out how to do it. I was told that the whole way through our board had mentioned that to Wes. Wes had mentioned it to me. It's impossible. We can't do it. Like you'll fail. It'll do this. It's definitely a risk you have to look at because you are pulled in a lot of directions and you're fighting against your own incentives, your own drive to hit your number versus helping lift up your team. And how do you balance all that out? And I just kind of pile it all in. All that success is mine, but the overall number is what I got to hit. And so like I get paid off of XYZ, that's fine, but I'm going to just mark myself against this number to drive success. So started to learn a little bit more about that management. Now you got to have one-to-ones and you got to do some trainings. You got to do call reviews with these SDRs. You have to do the hiring with that. There's a lot that goes in. So the data is like very tactical, lots of me doing the work to now it is more, I've got to zoom way out a lot of times a week. Um, And I have to look at what's the overall performance? Like what are our conversion stages for pipelines? What's the top of funnel look like? You know, what are their conversion stages for their activity pieces? CSMs, I'm looking at like health indicators now. What's going to tell us if it accounts at risk? How do we make sure we're on for renewals? And you're trying to create now processes that will cover all of these different people that might operate in a slightly different way because not everybody's going to do it all the same. And then you look at the team and now you've got to go, okay, here's the team, but now where are my weak points? And is everybody a weak point or is one person a weak point with this? Then you got to drill down into those individual people and say, where do they need my help? So it's just like multiple layers of Zoom. And then the biggest challenge you have as a leader where... You know, even as a little bit of a player coach, you're pulling a lot of directions. You can get very busy as a leader with an executive title, whether that's director or head of, doesn't matter. All your priorities change. Now it's company first. Now it is how do we get the strategic initiatives across while you still then hopefully those tie into your numbers. And the best way it's explained to me is you're going to have a million plates spinning at all times. It's not how you keep them spinning. It's identifying which ones can drop and break. And it's okay if they drop and break. And that's a really hard thing to transition to when you come from that individual contributor role where like you can keep it all moving and you got to have things clicking on all cylinders to now, what are the things I can allow to fail a little bit? So just like let that fire burn. It's not going to be mission critical for us. And I have to work on these things and just ignore that for a little bit. 
well, we do this because this is the thing we're betting on right now to help succeed. And that's probably the biggest challenge because now you're just thinking the big picture and you always have to keep that in mind. You mentioned a lot of things that we could dive into, but how did you learn about these things? Like, how did you learn that in a fitness industry, maybe you, you don't care about conversion from stage one to stage two of the deal pipeline. Where did you learn about these? Or like, how did you pick these up over time? Were there more mentors like you kind of had in the fitness space? Or was it a lot of like reading books? Or how did you get there? Yeah, over time, I've always been a learner, always been seeking information. So it's a mixture of all of those things. Lots of books. I remember reading the sales acceleration formula back in my fitness days and trying to figure that out and how do you build like kind of a pipeline and a marketing funnel and all the things that go into that. So getting a lot of exposure to that early was great. That information is awesome. But the things that have made the biggest impact for me are mentors and coaches. A pivotal moment in the career journey was when I started working with Rob Lime at Lucian and Associates. So it's an Indianapolis company. They help with the key of what they do is sales. Um, they do sales training, coaching, mentorship, but it's also very much geared towards like entrepreneurial. There's a bigger scope to it and they tie in the whole person with it. Getting that exposure to someone that sees all of these different businesses and gets to see how everything's set up and has a different way of thinking about things. That is where I learned the most. I credit Rob to kind of the breakthrough in my sales career. It's where when I was doing consulting in the fitness world, we were able to take it from like really just like barely keeping our head above water. We were in like deep, we weren't going to go out of business, but we were struggling to hit the growth goals that we needed to have. It was really challenging to really accelerating that to where we were doing 2 million a year in sales, driving that up. And it was all because of the things and the processes and the, the strategies, tactics, all that, that that I've learned. And the thing that I did is I dove head first into that. I had him as a coach. They do trainings. I was at every training that they did. I went to every leadership forum that they had to connect with other leaders and get their ideas with that. So I was always picking people's brains on what did they do? How does it work? And what's different? How can I apply that to what we do? And along the way, I've had different coaches. I've had executive coaches, leadership coaches, fortunate now to like, I still work with Rob to this day. That was a thing where I brought him on as soon as I was able to here at Woven. It's where we saw a giant spike in our top of funnel and hit our growth goals. And then had a chance to work with uh, Ryan Williams now as an executive coach that gives me that outside perspective. Of, like, here's what it's like to be a tech executive. Here's what you have to think about your next step in your career. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to the people it's like, we all have to walk a path and we're all going to make a bunch of mistakes. How quickly you learn from them is great. But if there are some big mistakes that I don't have to make and like those landmines that might just end your career, if I could have somebody go, Hey, watch out right there. Don't do that. Watch out over there. Don't do that. Or, Hey, there's a different way around that. What have you thought about this? Having that been able to learn and apply it has been the thing that just changes my career. So you get to avoid so many of those hiccups and learn along the way without having to do it the hard way. So it's the books are great. I think you should read them. I think there's a downside to reading too many books. You know, you could just consume a bunch of information, whether it's podcast books, whatever. There's only so much you can apply. And it's great to have that information. I find myself going back to you know, books that I read five years ago, reading them now. And it's like totally different book because of the experience. Yeah. Uh, but it's really been those mentors in that because it can also hold you accountable. You feel a little bit more connection to them. Uh, and that's, that's been the game changer for me. Yeah, no, I've heard so much about like, that is kind of how you shortcut 
these people have the experience that you want and they'll happy to help you, but you have to find them. And that's probably like the hardest part is finding the good fit. So is it Rob Lyme and Ryan Williams for people listening? Yes, correct. Yeah. Cool. The next thing I wanted to dive into a little bit was this idea of like ideal customer, product market fit. It's something that every early stage company kind of deals with. Uh, you already mentioned that you joined Woven kind of pre-product market fit. But so what was the ideal customer back then? I know you you said startups, but talk about like the actual ICP. It was a head of engineering at certain startup and kind of how did that definition develop over time? Yeah. So what we looked at is we're very like account focused. What we realized really quickly is, you know, our product is good for certain types of companies that value it at certain stages. So early on when I started, we looked at companies that had raised some funding and it could have been a million, two million. So we needed to see them raise some funding. We saw that was a great indicator that they're going to start hiring with this. And then we drilled down into our target within that was the head of engineering. Like what's the senior most engineering person there? And we'd actually had some disqualifiers early on where if they had a technical recruiter that we would not prospect into them with this. And a lot of it was because we had trouble tying the value to that. We were seeing as a little bit of competition. They didn't need us as much. And we're still figuring out messaging at that point. So it was a lot of seed series A type of companies that, that we had started to work with. And the plan was get into those. And as they grow, if we do a good job, we'll stay in, involved with that. Um, and then it's a lot of exploring and trial and error with it. And you figure out the market isn't, you know, eventually you run out of time with that market. And you've got to learn how to sell into these other areas. So then we gradually opened up. Okay, now we're going to say, oh, we figured out how to get in. We got a couple of deals with people that had technical recruiters and a recruiting team. Great. We know how to do that. Let's open that up. And we just gradually started to go up market a little bit at a time and kind of shift messaging with what we're doing and where we're having success and tracking like what's working, what's not working. Why do we lose this deal? How do we get into this deal? What do they say three months after they started about the value? And now we're at a point where strategically, I mentioned we moved up market where we've labeled it established tech is like the key area that we focus on. We still have plenty of startup SMB companies within that, but it's the established tech market is kind of just shy of enterprise. And the keys with that is like they have a large software engineering team of 100 or more and like a dedicated VP of software engineering. The thing we know is it's really hard for us to tie value into someone that even if they have engineering team or they're a little bit of a tech company where that is not the core of their product and that's not the big focus. They have to value bringing in really great engineers with this. Mm-hmm. Whereas like, you know, banks, they'll hire engineers, but maybe not at the same level that the aggressive startup is going to be or these established tech companies that, that we would focus in on. Now we still focus on engineering executives. So directors and above is a primary target. We know we have to get to them to win a deal. We now also can loop in and go on the talent side of the house or HR side of the house and look for those executives as well. So um, it's expanded and then that adds complexity because now we have different segments. uh, We have different personas within those segments. All those personas present with different problems. So now you've got to train your team on how do you want quickly identify segment, problem, persona, the talk track for that, or what's your pitch and your value prop for that? Because if you misalign that, like you're going to lose more deals than you end up winning. And so this continues to add complexity to it, but that's part of the fun. 
a lot of startups, you know, they start in that place of pre-product market fit. And you obviously joined on, like we talked about before you got to that, that point. So what kind of things would you recommend for like early stage AEs or sales leaders that join on these like pre-product market fit startups to actually like find their place? Like, what did you guys do? I know you mentioned like reviewing deals, like reviewing, why did we lose this deal? Like, what are they saying a couple months after that? Uh, and those, I think those are great. Were there any other things that you kind of thought were pivotal in determining like, and in kind of improving on that ICP and kind of getting closer to that, what you consider like product market fit and eventually uh, hitting it? Yeah. Number one is listen to your customers and prospects. You get the founder's curse with a lot of founders that come in where they've got their idea of where this fits and it. They may have an amazing product, an amazing idea overall, but what they think the value is may not be what the prospect or the market thinks that value is or how you need to sell it to them. So it's listening to them. But I think the fastest way we learned was we weren't afraid to try new stuff. And we had a lot of people involved in the process. You've got to bring a lot of people into it where the engineering and product and engineering team has to be ready to hear the feedback for this is what we're missing. This is why we're losing deals. Here's what people are asking us in calls, doing the debriefs on deals that you lose. We would brief after every call that we had just to hear what did they say? How did they say it? What were they telling us they were trying to overcome, even if we didn't have that fit yet uh, with this? And then it's about sharing it with everyone in the organization so we can continue to build that product towards what they needed. Um, and then you have to prioritize like what's most important. You know, we're at this point still, we're making, we have some work to do to get really great product market fit overall for that like enterprise level. That's a way different product than what the, the startups need with this. So we have to do that same process almost every market you go into or every segment you go into. You've got to figure that out again. And how do you tie it in and then prioritize what are the things about that product market fit you need to create that generate, that move the needle in the area you need to? You know, for us, we look at, okay, top of funnel is still the thing we want to drive most. What are the things we can create, the features we have, build the product that says we can get more top of funnel because of this? Not necessarily with expansion or stickiness. We do a good job there right now. So it's making those trade offs. So it kind of goes to align. What are your biggest challenges or initiatives as a company? Okay, where's the product at now? And be really honest with yourself with where, where it is. The other part would be be very transparent with your customers early on. I probably can't count on both hands how many customers early I told, I don't think we're a good fit right now for you. I don't think we'd knock it out of the park. Mm-hmm. They've come back. And now that we're ready, they're a customer and have been there for a long time with us. So being transparent also helps you see like, they'll help you tell you what you're missing. If you oversell it, they might churn and you don't ever figure out why. But if you tell them up front, you'll say, here's what we do really well. They'll say, we need these three things. Hey, we're not there yet. Is that okay? If it's not, no big deal. But now you know the things and you start to compile that information. One thing I wish I would have done better early on was track more of this in CRM or keep Mm -hmm. tabs and make it less ambiguous, you know, and it's really hard to do early on, but you create those buckets for why do you lose, lose a deal and you create these different areas. So you can kind of start to categorize your data because it's there. But a lot of times early in the process, it's hard to figure out like how to put it all together to make your good decisions later on. Yeah, totally on board with you there. Uh, given automations and background and everything. Uh, I want to I want to keep moving. There's a couple more things that I want to hit on that I think would be really interesting to hear your perspective. So how is kind of the sales team 
evolved since you started. So you, you mentioned that you guys brought on SDRs pretty early on. You kind of took on a more leadership role and then brought on more AEs. Now it seems like kind of the customer team is reporting up to you as well. Like, So how has that kind of evolved uh, since you started? And yeah, kind of like, why did you choose to add like SDRs versus having AEs do the prospecting? Like just what were you thinking kind of as you kind of, yeah, just grew the organization as a whole? Yeah, there's lots of trade-offs to be made here as you decide that. So as we went on, early on, I was full cycle AE. And so prospecting, figuring out how to build the pipeline, what could we do? And then also working those deals. At the key point where like was driving some pipeline, but then in the deals, you're pulled in both directions. And we did a kind of a quick evaluation of like, where's the most energy applied? What's the highest skill type of, of effort we need to have? Also looking at like cash burn, business impact. What do we have there? It was like, okay, I was figuring out how to sell it. Like we're getting ready to close the deals, but I had to spend a ton of time building the pipeline. We're mm. still figuring out messaging. We're still doing that. We can bring another AE on and then they're going to have to learn how to sell and how to prospect this. And that's an option. And you can run all full cycle with this because our deal size wasn't large at the time. We're at, you know, 10K, 10 to 15K on an ACV for that. So it's not like a, not an unreasonable thing to think an AE should build their own pipeline, but we did see the amount of energy and effort that it took and the volume to get the prospects in. And so we doubled down and said, let's go hire three SDRs, kind of knowing the normal model. That, and again, this is a thing I fought back against. Like you'll hire three, one will stick. So brought three on and said, we'll train them up and we can get more pipeline. I can then handle the pipeline and just coach them. When the pipeline gets full, then we'll talk about AEs. And I think, and we have kind of a lopsided model on the SDR to SDR to AE side, but our retention rate and net revenue retention is so good that we get the payback period on those SDRs is a good ratio for a, a fast growing startup. Uh, so we made that bet. That's what we're going to do because we thought that would drive the most top of funnel to get the revenue, which was the most important. Where if we brought another AE or two on, Maybe they don't stick either. And now we're just in the same path, but I'm doing less because I don't have as many opportunities. So we brought that on. And then the bet was, I'm going to drive it as fast as I possibly can. And I'll take as many deals. And it got to the point where I was running 8 to 12 conversations and demos a, a day. And just at that point, you can't keep up. Like you just can't wow. manage the pipeline <laughs> with that. It, it was a lot. And so now it's time to go hire the AEs to build that out. And I did promote one of those first SDRs. At that point, I said, well, I can't do all the things with the SDRs. So promoted one to a team lead where he was one of the first hires. Now he was going to run team lead for some of the new ones we had. I went to work to hire the AEs and we hired two of our first AEs and said, okay, we don't know. Like, are they going to fit? We'll see. Bring on two AEs. Get that. And then now you're watching pipeline status. So it's like, is your top of funnel enough to feed your A's? What's that balance? I'm always thinking trade-offs and, and what do we have to do? What's that next hire to make? If I bring on a new AE, does that just dilute the pipeline? Now you've got three P, like pissed off AEs because their pipeline's not there. So you're balancing all that as you go through. And then you just start to look at like, where's your time got to go? And then there's also things like, what are the only things I can do? Um, so right now I know like, I have an SDR manager that has seven SDRs. He can do that. He's done that. Same team lead. So it's been with me for a while. We've tried a bunch of different functions with this. Um, at one point, I tripled the team. We broke every process and system and everything fell apart. Like we just, everything broke. 
had to go back and say, okay, let's scale it back down. Let's, let's reconfigure and let's see what we can get out of that. We've had different structures on that team that we've tried. Some of it's trial and error. Sometimes you find out that people aren't working. Then you figure out like, what can only you do as that leader? And I'm the only one that can train and coach those AEs right now. There's no one else on the team that can do that. I'm the one that knows the pipeline, how to do it, how to move the win rates. So I work directly with AEs. They're my, they were my priority. Help the SDR manager with the SDRs, keep them moving. And then we did have to go through a bit of a restructure. We had to look at this like forecast. We looked at our cash run rate and said, okay, here's the different plans that we're going to make. Here's the changes that this, you know, the environment's going to have. And I told you, we made the shift to that mid-market and we're having success with it. But we said, here's what the team looks like now. Because after a fundraise, you build the team really quickly after for what you plan it to be in 12 months. Mm-hmm. We raised the money last November and by February, March, start to see these trends. Yeah. And now you go, wait, I don't know if we need that team. We're not going to hit that number. Yeah. We got to look at what, what do we need for this? And so it's less about the people. It, it's a sucky thing to have to do. Yeah. And you have to look overall at the business. You hopefully do it in a way that's like empathetic and human for the people that you do have to let go. But you had to make this decision so we didn't have to make a tougher one later. Um, and said we made the right bet. So then it's like, well, what else can I do? I was like, I can help with the CS team. I know enough about it. I can do the the renewals. So now my focus shifts to new business renewals and expansions. Those are the two revenue drivers. I've got to be able to oversee that. And then you have to gradually make those trade-offs of what can someone else do? Can you level someone else up on the team? Is there an opportunity? You're looking for that next leader that might want to step up and take on a little more than what they're doing now while still maintaining this. So there's a lot of those trade-offs. So now the structure looks like I've got my uh, small team of CS, CSMs that I work with, the days, and then the, the SDRs uh, from that, which is a, that's a lot to take on. But given any point in time, I've had 20, 20, 30 people reporting to me. Yeah, it gets to be a lot. Now I've got you know right around 14 that report in. So you can kind of ebb and flow as you go through and you just have to evaluate. Like again, you go back to that, like, at this level, it's like you care about the people. It weighs on my mind all the time that if that everyone's job at Woven is my responsibility to drive this revenue. But there's also company first because the company doesn't exist. Again, nobody else has it. And so you've got to think about those things and then zoom into like, how do I make that happen with the team that I have? Yeah. So and there's so this is an interesting question given now that you kind of oversee the customer side of it. But how do you, as kind of like the revenue leader, work with the other departments? So I'm guessing there's also some sort of marketing function within Woven as well. Uh, how are you making sure that it's kind of like one revenue goal and not like a, a marketing goal and a sales goal? How do you guys approach that? Yeah. So like one of my personal values and the thing I've said on my team is uh, passion to win, but win together. And I want every one of my reps to want to be the top. Uh, I want you to want to strive to be that top performer. I want you to want to win, but we're going to not hold things back. We're all aiming to the same thing. We're going to elevate each other up. And I carry that through with my peers on the leadership side. So, you know, we've got a marketing function. We've got product and engineering uh, across the board. We have that. So we're really collaborative at Woven. And we've been that way from day one. So... How I work with those folks, we do consistent check-ins with it. We all do one-to-ones, whether it's weekly or bi-weekly with my peers across their departments and functions. We'll do alignment meetings with this where we get marketing and sales alignment, make sure we're all working. Here's what we're hearing. Here's what we're seeing. Here's what we're doing. 
And a lot of it comes from the top-down leadership. Wes is really good about tying all of it together, getting us to be collaborative. If someone has a problem in an area, we all jump in to help fix it and give input and share what we can with this. So it all starts at that leadership level. But you have to be willing to do that. You can't be... And I've always been the sales leader that says like, marketing sales have the same goal. I don't want us to bicker. There's always going to be a healthy amount of friction. Marketing sales, sales to CS, product engineering is going to be not happy with all the things we request. They'll always be that. But when we're all aligned on the overall goals for the company at the leadership level, we all know what it's going to take to get there. And we all want to drive towards that. It's really easy to be collaborative with that and jump in. And you know, it's the point it's what's like, you have to be working towards that. Like, There's no reason to bicker about it. We can give feedback. We're really direct. We tell things that we don't like. We're going to share that. And what, it ties back to some values. One of our values of Oven's candor with care, something that I, I really brought in. I think I hopefully drove a lot of this was, I'm going to be really direct with you, but I'm going to give you the feedback you need because we're all working to the same direction. I care about you as a person. I'm going to deliver it, hopefully. I don't always do a great job of this, but deliver it with like, the empathy and care so that you're receiving it well, so that it's a growth thing. We're not always going to agree on it. Like we, we are going to disagree or get some arguments. We have to put that beside and say like, okay, cool. We all, we agree the goal we're going to go after and we all do it. So some of the culture and just how the teams work. And then it's about the leadership showing that like, we're all going to be in this to move to the same goal. And that means we have to work together and have to work cross-functionally. So there's a lot of that at Woven and everybody jumps in. I feel very lucky to be, come into a company where everybody knew sales was driving the number early. Like sales was the thing we had to double down on or nothing existed. And now it's we just have a much bigger team and people still know that revenue matters and that comes from all different areas. Yeah, no, I think that's like a realization that a lot of successful companies have had. So it's good that you guys are kind of on board chugging along there. And I want to end it with one last question. So the purpose of this podcast, like you and I mentioned at the beginning, is to help those people who are individual contributor roles or maybe just early stage leaders. So I'd love to hear about like people who are maybe either at Woven or just in general. If you're having a conversation with them, like what are you talking about in terms of progressing their career? Like what kind of things are you having when you're having those conversations with your team or just in hypothetical situation if it's not something that's currently happening? Yeah. So I'm a big advocate for this as a leader. I have career conversations with my team at least once a month. I was four minutes late to jump on ours because I was in a one-on-one. It was the career conversation. Robert, I just want to know like what motivates you? Where do you want to go? I don't try to steer or guide anyone in this. I want to hear like, where do you think you want to go? And then you've got to take kind of like put your sales hat on and go two or three layers deeper. Why? What about that? Because I think you get a lot of canned answers, especially from people just starting out in their careers, uh, just getting into this. You know, you know it's like uh, AE or management. Like you're going to hear those two things. Like I want to manage a team under this. Well, why? What about it? Okay. Um, well, here are the things that have to happen for this to go on. Here's some of the skills. Like, are you ready for that? Here's some gaps that we have. So a lot of it is about like what motivates them. Where do they want to see themselves? You have to truly understand why. And then this goes kind of ties into the coaching is at kind of helping them see the work that they're going to have to do to go make that happen. And then you've got to have those conversations. And then as the leader, you've got to remember what your job is to support them, to provide them with the opportunities to go get that, whether that's outside coaching to help them level up before they're ready, 
resources now, projects that they can take in on, loop them into things that they maybe they don't have to be looped in on, on decisions or projects where they can see how some of that interacts and get them that exposure with it. Yeah. Uh, but it really comes down to like, you can't guide anyone to a direction they don't want to go. You've got to find out where they want to go. So it's open-ended conversations. And if it's, I just want to be in this role and I'm really happy, that's okay too. Um, that's not for me to decide that that's for them. And then when I have those conversations, cause I have them all the time with my coaches, things that have helped me also is like, what's the end game? Like, where do you want to go? What do you think that really is? And you got to stretch people out to like maybe beyond what they can think about so that you can at least start that idea. You know, in an early SDR career, what do you want to be in five years? is like impossible to think about or how much do you want to make? Um, so you've got to guide them in that and, you know, there's a billion tools and frameworks to to get there. It's, you know, I, I think it's big. And then having people write that down, you write it down so that you can keep tabs on it and rep, come back to it when you get yep. there. But you got to be having those conversations. And it's mostly about what do they want and why? Well, yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, I, I think you have a really lucky team underneath you there at Wilbin. So thank you, Brian, again, for hopping on the podcast. No, thank you guys. It was great. I uh, hope people got some value out of it and uh, was able to share some insights and always happy to help anyone out if they have questions.